Hi there, Dave Levine here. Thanks for joining me for episode eight of the Sports Stories podcast. It's great to have you with us. Let me take you back to the last episode with Pete Ackley. I posed the question to you, who are the key people in your network to support you to progress? Or another way of putting it is, who's around your personal boardroom table? Well, today's guest is Manisha Taylor. Manisha has an amazing story and pays tribute to the key people around her personal boardroom table and those that have continued to impact on her life. Manisha also touches on the very important subject of mental health in sport and more broadly, which is timely given its Mental Health Awareness Week. I'm really looking forward to finding out more about her views on mental health as well as the transition she has made from teacher to coach, as well as setting up her own business as a young South Asian lady. It's definitely a conversation not to be missed. So it gives me great pleasure in welcoming QPR Lead Foundation Phase football coach, Manisha Taylor. Manisha, welcome to the Sports Stories podcast. Thanks for showing some interest and giving up your time today. It's really great to have you on board. As you well know, we've been sort of communicating over the last uh, couple of weeks or so over social media. We've not met before, but um, I think we've found a, a connection in terms of the worlds that we work in and also um, common philosophy. And one of the things that really excited me about connecting with you and speaking to you is about the environment that you work in and, and also your story, your background, and some of the work that you have planned going forward. The key thing for me, though, however, is whenever I introduce a guest is to allow my guests to share who they are and tell them a little bit about themselves so the, the, uh, the audience can really get a sense of who we're talking to today. So as a starter, can you just give us an insight as to what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, thank you. Thank you for allowing me to share uh, my story. Um, so my, my background's in primary education. I qualified as a primary school teacher in um, 2001. And at the time, I actually had no, um, like, no interest or didn't envision myself working in football full time as I, as I do now. And um, through through the years, I found myself um, noticing that actually in in primary schools, particularly around that time, um, you didn't really have that many teachers that were equipped and felt confident enough to be able to take on after school clubs in and around football specifically, and. It's a lot better now, particularly when I speak to a lot of my colleagues who who are still teaching. Um, with, with regards to the gender imbalance with primary school teachers who are male to female. But certainly when I was teaching, there was many more females than there were male teachers. And I've always loved football. I've grown up loving football. Um, me and my twin brother uh, played football, you know, at primary school um, and, and, and as we were growing up. But so when I was growing up, so, I, you know, in the 80s, there certainly were not many females playing football um and i remember my primary school teacher actually um saying to me that oh you can play for the school but there was an opportunity for me to also play for mill hill and funnily enough i'm four foot nine but actually i was a goalkeeper at the time <laughs> brilliant <laughs> so, 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 definitely something went wrong along the way um because i definitely wouldn't be a keeper now and um she said that, but if you do decide to play for Mill Hill, you can't play for the school. And, you know, you're an eight or a nine-year-old and you just think, oh, no, you know, I want to, I'd love to play with my friends, my best friend Jenna. And it was for me, playing for the school team was a be-all and end-all. So that was pretty much it. You just get on with it. I went to secondary school and around, so this is, I went into secondary school, probably 92. Um, and again, very few opportunities for fem females to play. Um, and I remember speaking to my PE teacher and asked him why we didn't have any girls football teams or girls football clubs. And just the simple answer really was, is that there isn't a need and there isn't a need because there actually aren't that many girls that want to play. So me and Jenna went to separate schools, but then Claire also loved football, uh, who, um, who I became friends with in, in my secondary school. And we were pretty much the only two girls who play in our school uniform. But in terms of wider opportunities to progress, perhaps as a player, um, I, I, you know, I recognize that there were very few opportunities, that there really, really wasn't a pathway as developed as it is now, which I think is brilliant. Uh, for, for young girls and, and, and for women. 
But one of the things that I really started to think about was the um, ethnicity imbalance. And actually, I'm South Asian, so I'm Indian. And my parents were more than happy for me to play football when I was growing up. But as long as it was attached to school because of the school element and for, for them to have to take me to a club, whether it's a grassroots club or, 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 or any other, any other setup, that was a big deal. And it was a big deal for them because of how they felt they would be perceived within the community, particularly at that time. And I remember going to trials for Barnet, the, the girl center of excellence when I was nine and, and Jenna was there. And so Jenna's mom took me, my, you know, her mom said to my mom, don't worry, I'll take her there. And I got in and it was, it, it, it would never go to, you know, it was never going to go to fruition because again, for, for my mum, it was a commitment of, I have to take you on the weekends, but more so it was the community element and the stereotypes mm-hmm. around South Asian girls playing football. So, you know, you're upset for a little, a little while and then you just get over it because you're a nine, 10 year old. What was, um, it, what was it like? Can you, can you recall what was it like when you first went? Yeah, I was, um, when I first went for the trial or when, so I remember it was in a school hall, actually. It was in a hall because I remember it and I school, uh, I'm left, um, I'm left footed. And I remember going t- taking it on my right side, t- taking it on my right side and I happened to score. And I thought, how on earth did I do that? <laughs> but anyhow, the coach, the coach thought, yes. And then, you know, he said to me, you're in. And then I thought, God, now I've got to tell my mum. And at the time I was, I was upset for a while. Um, um, and I was upset because I really wanted to play. And at that time, I couldn't quite understand the the stereotypes and this thing around yes. how it would be perceived by others. Because in my head, it was very much, I don't care, I just want to play. But now when I look back on, on it, um, you know, 30, 30 odd years off, that it's... I. I you know, those stereotypes and the taboo and balance, we've definitely moved ahead. And I think that there's a pathway now. And I think that the generation, if we're looking at um, ethnicity wise, I certainly think that it'd be my generation or the, um, my like my sister's 13 years younger. So my sister's generation who, you know, when they have kids, they would be equally promoting sport as a professional or a career. Um, whereas for, for my mum and my dad and my grandparents, that was definitely not the thing that, that, that you do. And, and for them, it was just because of their upbringing and how they perceived the world to be. And, you know, like I said, that I look, I look now and I think, you know, I am in football, um, and circumstance mm. took me out of working full time, uh, in 2011, because through my teaching career, you know, I was really focused on um, wanting to be a, a, a good teacher, wanting to be a good senior leader. And I got um, in, in one of my, in my last role, I was a deputy head and I was a trainee head because I got on to the national qualification for headship. Right. And my vision really was um, I want to be able to have sport as a massive part of my school so eventually. What- so was your first was your first kind of career move then after kind of education into following down a teacher pathway is that correct so my my career move actually came as a result of um me trying to complete my master's which i was doing an ma in leadership at the time okay because that would complement my headship diploma my mum also had a triple heart bypass and i was i became a young carer for my twin brother when we were 18 and he needs absolute one-to-one care so th- there was just a lot going on at the same time. So I just I just thought the best thing for me to do would be to complete my contract to the summer okay. and then take a school term out so I could do the things that I needed to do with the view of get a job for January the following year. However, through the time, what I was able to do was to liaise with football governing bodies and people in football but purely through my role in in teaching because you know those who who know primary schools and been in and around primary schools know that you pretty much 
the head of every department that there is. So one of my one of my roles through 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 my career was um, being in charge of extended schools, and as part of that, the school that I happened to work in at that time was in Wembley, and we were neighbouring Wembley Stadium. So Rachel Yankee, um, who you know played for England, played uh, played for Arsenal, she she had a link with our school. And she spoke to me. So we did some work around um, looking at children who were underachieving but loved sport and how we could influence their education through football. And she spoke to me, actually, because I, uh, what I did do was I set up after-school clubs and, 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 and lunchtime clubs for the girls and then for the boys and, you know, not with any qualifications. I didn't have any coaching badges. I just did what I thought was was best at the time. But... One of the things I would, I would say is, is that unless you know, you don't know. So I don't come from football first. I'm, I'm, I don't come from that environment. Yeah. So I was unaware that you could actually go and gain qualifications. Right. And Rachel then made me aware that actually, you know, you could go to the county FA, just go on the website and then you could get a level one and so on. So that then led me to get my level one, then work towards my level two. And I was still teaching full time at the time. Um, and I then began, as well as doing the schools coaching, uh, while I was teaching, I then began coaching for Rachel at her grassroots community club on the weekend. So you're saying such a lot here and I'm thinking, wow. So you were, you were leading one of the, you were a senior leader within the school. You were a, a coach. You were setting up all the after school clubs. You were caring as well at home. Am I correct in hearing you were doing all of these sort of things, all juggling them at the same time? Yeah, yeah. And actually, uh, the wow. schools that I had worked in didn't know about uh, my brother. Okay. They didn't know. And I look back now, and one of my learnings and yeah. something that I'd say for other people would be, you have to share. Because what I didn't want to do is to be judged. And that was a big thing for me that... I want to be good at my job. I really want to learn and I want to get better. And I had a lot of frustration because, you know, my brother's condition came as a result of trauma and bullying when he was at school. And it was really hard for me because, you know, you're born with somebody and his condition now is such that he only talks to the voices he hears, but he cannot communicate verbally as we do. Wow. So up until 18, we did everything together and he was my best friend I had to talk to him all the time and that kind of thing you know we shared similar friendships um, circles and now all of a sudden you know there comes a point where he's he's developing um, psychosis there's depression uh, there's 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 elements of schizophrenia and you're going from somebody who we would you know say is, is is a normal 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 uh, child or person, yeah, young, young person who, yeah. yeah to somebody now who cannot even recognize who you are and that's a big change mm. and my sister was only five at the time because right. there's a big age gap between us so yeah. there was a lot to deal with and the only thing that kept me focused was looking at my mum and just thinking i can't break down because if i do that she's going to break down and we need to keep this together somehow. So I thought by letting it known to others at work, I would get judged and that then maybe affect me progressing. You know, I, I wanted to continue as a senior leader and, you know, and when, when jobs were coming up to be an assistant or a deputy, I wanted to be good enough to be able to apply. And, and I just felt at the time that, Oh, they, you know, particularly where mental health wasn't spoken about. So there's, there's, there's so many factors here. You've got, mm. you've got an area of taboo. Then the fact that we're from yeah. the South Asian community, and in my head, if I'm honest, I was, I'm still, I'm still trying to comprehend what's going on. Yeah. I don't really understand this. We've never experienced this before. Oh. Um, so you know, you're, you're dealing with a mixture of things here, and you know, he, he was sectioned and. Right. We're talking about extreme trauma um, of a child. And that's certainly, I feel for me, these these experiences, and I'll share those in a moment with with, with the trauma, have shaped me as a teacher when I was teaching 
the young people in the school and as a coach. So ju- just to holding you on that point, I- I'm really curious as to, you know, what was it like in that time when you when you came to sharing your views? Because, I, you know, the worlds that we both work in nowadays, you know, that word about sharing stuff and some people holding back and some people giving out is still is a fine balance for many people. And I'm just wondering, how was it when you did share it and people did become known as to what was going on for you? I actually only shared it um, quite recently. So okay. when I say recent, I'd, I'd say probably about six, six, seven, say recent, since my career, just after my career change, actually. So that's probably now, that's probably now about good seven, seven, eight years. <laughs> okay. yeah. Um, wow. But yeah, but it was when I came out of education, and I'll tell you why. The reason I, I shared it was because um, I, I, could, I wanted to reconnect with, with football to help my brother. And I yeah. knew, and I just felt it. I don't know how I knew, but I did. I felt that I could help him because physically he was fine. So I thought, hold on a minute. You know, I, I started to develop link, um, link. I started to develop other work. Through, through football when I was freelancing. And I thought to myself, there's got to be a way of being able to connect with, with my brother and use other forms of communication. And he loved football and physically oh, okay. he was fine. So my focus then became on, okay, how can I help him? And, and you know, selfishly, I wasn't thinking about anybody else at the time. Yeah. It was really about, okay, what else can I do? So I set up my brand. I then linked up with Wingate and Finchley Football Club, which are my local non-league club. Right. In fact, I live right opposite opposite the club and they were already running a mental health and disability program voluntarily. Yes. So I spoke to them and, you know, um, through, through a conversation, we then decided actually can we start something within within our borough of Barnet? And it would be predominantly for people like my brother who have um, extreme needs where they do need absolute one-to-one because there were several projects that other people in football who were fantastic actually um, did speak to me about when they found out my story. People who I'd connected with, yeah. um, with coaches and tutors, and they said, you know, do know that this borough runs this, this county does this. Um, one of the difficulties were that if you're not within the catchment, you can't actually access the support. Right. So those who live within a catchment or within, within the borough, you, you really have to seek support. Yeah. Um, that, that's, that's within where, nearby where you live. And unfortunately within Barnet, I was struggling to find things, yeah. struggling to find sporting activities. I'm, I'm correct in hearing that, you accessed the football because it was a language which really was able to help you connect with your brother and therefore help other people with similar needs. Yeah, absolutely. Because I just think the great thing about football and sport as a whole, it's um, that it's a universal language. So anybody can engage and participate in football. And then that's a fantastic thing about it. And when we started, um, you know, this partnership with, uh, when I don't say we, I, I see it as a joint with me and my brother. When we when yeah. we started <laughs> like this with, um, with with Wingate, that there were there were only two, and then there were three, and then there were four. And what was great was you had those with with real severe needs that my brother has, and you could really see how the care workers were now. Um, consciously having to think about creative ways in connecting with those that they work with because one is 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 the person who may have the mental health problem or or, or the disability and the other is is you've got the angle of the care worker so they're also the connections vital and the connection is really important and Can can you give an example of something that stands out for you yeah, there was um, so there was a female care worker who um, didn't really like you know didn't really like football, but the way that she would communicate and connect with the person she was working with was what was you know had a lot of care and, and was and, and was fantastic, and it was just working with her and showing her because what I then did was sorry I linked up with Middlesex um, FA County who were providing some support. Um, um, and Byron, he he came to come and help with some coaching. It it was actually just us uh, providing tools and techniques. And I always say I'm I'm by no means um, 
a disability expert. I, I don't have qualifications in those in those areas or in psychology. I have been within this care environment with my brother for 22 years. So I can only go on on that and, and, as, and, and perhaps I draw upon my teaching experiences. And the way that she connected and the way that she was then able to just forget the fact that she didn't like football, but throw and catch, do basic things. And she found that she was then also, um, you know, having a positive experience. And when we talk about mental health, it's not negative. You've also got positive mental health because as well as, you know, it, it, it impacting particularly sport and football, you know, be, being a great thing for physical and, and mental well-being. But the social interactions and, and, you know, the emotional connections you get, I think, are, are brilliant. Would you, what would you say you have really brought and, and transferred across from your educational world into, into the sport world? What are the learnings that you brought with you, do you think, that would help somebody in a similar place that's listening in? I think it's, it's definitely got to be an understanding of pedagogy and, and learning and understanding stages of learning and the fact that seeing the, the players as children before footballers. Yeah. And I think it's important to remember that unless you're in the, the competitive or performance arena where you're working with, you know, like some first team players, as an example, you're in, you're working in development and these are, these are young children and I think sometimes what can happen is, is they can be perceived to be mini footballers straight away. And, and yeah, they're, you know, they are there to, 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 to be footballers. So particularly when you're working within an academy, there is an outcome and there is a certain element of, of competition because of the nature of, of the system. However, they are still children and they need to be coached and taught in that way. And I think also there's a big difference between being able to have all this football knowledge in your head and being able to teach and disseminate that information. That's a skill in itself. Wow. So go on and give us some tips or, you know, what, what, what are the key elements of that learning? Because again, you're resonating for me on, on so many points here because part of the work I've been fortunate to do over the last few years is to work in the Paralympic environment and therefore working in with, with people with varying different needs. And then you've also brought in the dynamic here of working with young people, you know, and so coming from an educational background into coaching, whether it be in a, you know, in a disability sport or a mental health arena or with young people, there must be some common themes. What would you say they are that come from the education world? I think um, the, the common themes are around um, how you engage with people and finding tools and techniques that work. And then, you know, it's just ensuring that that's individualized to meet the individual needs of whoever the child or the player is. And one of the things that definitely helped me towards gaining my role as, um, as lead foundation phase is the fact that I did have this experience. So one is having strategic experience um, and you're coming into, you know, where you're now managing a phase and you're managing staff. Um, and the other is, is around learning. And then it's about, you know, the, the great thing about why is it, uh, my head of coaching, Chris Ramsey, is that he, he sees potential, not just in players, but also in, in, in people. And it was then, how can I then help her develop and become a better coach because I don't come from football first I come from another environment but his what he did look at was what 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 can she offer because she can coach I had my B license and that you know and I had the qualifications to that were required however what I didn't have were the coaching hours that perhaps the other coaches had simply because when they were coaching I was in another field you were in learning so, weren't you? <laughs> you were in the learning yeah, field <laughs> I was in the, yeah, exactly. I was in the learning field. Yeah. And, um, what I did find myself doing when I was part-time for two seasons before I became uh, full-time was, so I had the under nines for two, for two seasons. And Chris was great because he, he's very open to ideas as long as it aligns to the philosophy of the club and he can show and, and that we can show. So if I was able to 
to justify why I felt this could help the players. So I'll give you some examples of, of techniques and strategies. So for example, um, I got these small little football boots and what I did was with the Velcro, I laminated tags and I labeled it like inside, outside, sole, and that kind of thing. So they could, you know, Velcro the labels and it was, and, and so that, that was just one. And, and that pretty much could be used for anything, passing, dribbling or that kind of thing, you know, um, within our that our philosophy that that Chris put in place what I did was create drawings and pictures and word word cards and then I'd have that um laminated and I'd put it up on the board so what I'd always be doing is more about when we think about the characteristics of children particularly you look at the nines nines to elevens some of them are around um you know, fear of failure uh developing developing stronger relationships um but Two of the ones that I'll draw upon are around being egocentric and not not wanting to share, but not because they don't like to share, but purely because they haven't got the, they haven't developed the cognitive capacity to understand. It's not just about me here. So in their head, it is about me, and I just want the ball, and I just want the ball on my own, and and the enthusiasm and being excitable. So, in order for them to develop particularly the, the, that age, we need to give them repetition and rehearsal. So I was then, what I was able to do was link that to our philosophy in relation to language. So we've, te- we've got our technical program, but this was just adding another element. So yeah. for instance, by constantly being able to reference and look at the words, they were learning the words. And then it was developing that into the connection with what does this look like when you're now doing the skill? what does this look like when you're now up against an opponent opponent or what does this look like within the game so like i said for me one of the the, the good things is is that i've got a head of coaching who actually also has a teaching degree uh, okay i was going to so, ask that question yes. <laughs> how were you received in that environment bringing those these um different approaches let me put it that way with chris i was seen as you can try it as long as i can justify why and it was then um, it was almost like a trial and error, see how it goes, because it was seen as different by others. And through the seasons, anyhow, it soon catched on. And, um, you know, th- then when I became um, became foundation phase lead and uh, what we were then doing together with, with the other lead phase coaches as well was almost producing resources, visual resources mm-hmm. uh, for, for the kids. And And I feel that, the next stage to that now, though, is being able to teach how you enable the children to learn with these resources. Because you can have things up on the board, whether it's words or pictures and that kind of thing, but being able to engage with the children and teach that is another skill. So I wouldn't say that we're entirely there yet with that but what i would say is is two things one is is i think that what the youth modules now do with 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 coaching is actually give people who haven't come from that learning environment an opportunity to be able to learn some of those skills and actually learn more about how 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 how, how players young players develop i think for me as a learning tool it's definitely been reflecting on actually everyone has different strengths and for me, it was quite automatic on, oh, I'm, I'm going to create this scaffold for their learning journals yeah. to help the under nines, you know, yeah. like I would draw a picture and I would, but, for, but that's because I, I was, I, I was doing that for more than 10 years yeah. in, in education. And a reflection for me was actually thinking about, you've got people who've been in football and haven't been taught in that way. Yeah. So that, that's, that, that definitely for me was a learning tool with regards to actually, I think that, you need to look at the skill set and, and the strengths of different people yeah. and actually what you can do, you know, like I said, with, with, with Chris, it's great because I was, he also comes from an educational background and our philosophy has been built around how children learn and yeah. stages of learning. Um, so I'm quite fortunate there, but I, I think being able to complement skills with others is, is a great thing and I, and I think for me that's what that's certainly what helped in enabling me to gain the role that I'm in now and now for me it's just you know it, it's continuing to develop 
And I, and I guess I'm hearing it off. So, you know, as you implement these new and different ways into, into the club or into the environment, you know, it's going to take some time to settle and, and, and embed. Are you beginning to see some uh, positive outcomes? Do you see the benefit and the difference it's making, do you think? I mean, I, you know, from, from the age groups that, that, that I've worked with, I'd like to think that um, they, they've gained a better understanding of the philosophy. They're, yeah. you know, they're being a lot more resourceful. Okay. So uh, one of the things um, that I used to do a lot of work around when I was teaching was using Guy Claxton's model of, he called it the six R's of learning. But one of those R's is, about, is around being resourceful. And what, what, what I feel that this does is it allows the players those opportunities. So whether it's using huddle and analysis, whether it's using oh, the whiteboard with the pictures, whether it's using cue cards, it's, I, don't, I don't see it as it's, it's an overload of information because actually what you'll do is you will tailor it to who you've got. Yeah. And what we have to do, though, is make sure that we do provide the players a resource base to draw upon yeah. and then they can take what they need from it and i, I and i hear manish as well like it, we're beginning to or you, you are really beginning to try and embed um a philosophy of helping the young people learn how to learn rather than it's just the football it's actually actually these are processes by which you're embedding in them so you know when you know there's a there's a lot of talk isn't there in the sport world about actually um growing individual people as opposed to just players and i think is that is that the philosophy you're playing to and that actually the football comes along with this but actually you're giving these people life skills is that fair yeah, definitely. I think for, um, so. For me, the meta metacognition is a, a big part of, say, my belief, yeah. and um, that within 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 my club environment uh, translates um, certainly in a different way. But there are opportunities there for players to be able to reflect right. and to be able to develop as people as well as you know just just footballers and i think that what what's really important is that as much as you know you've got, you've you've got the players there uh, for a reason and they'll be a professional football club because they're good enough to be there and they have a dream and their dream is to be professional footballers which is why there's a commitment from them and there's a commitment from the parents and i think that we have to give them every opportunity to succeed whatever that may look like so for some, that might be um, perhaps playing for the first team of that club. That might be playing any other salaried football. That might be gaining a career abroad. Or that might just be education and developing other skills, which they can then take Absolutely. after their football life is, you know, is, is, is finished. So I think that this whole, when we're, looking at, when we're talking about the whole player, Yes, there's, you know, the technical, physical aspect, but there's uh, a lot of talk now around the psychosocial model. And for me, def definitely within um, my, my, my values and my beliefs, thinking about the thinking is, is a massive part of that. And, it, and what that does, like you said, um, is it develops the life skills that the players need for their, for their later life. Right. Well, let, let's come, we'll come back to the, the, the sort of the psych and social aspects. But just before we, we go there, uh, you also mentioned parents. And, you know, with this model that you're bringing in and the age group that you work with, how do you engage with the parents and bring them along with your philosophy and approach? So um, I think being honest and having honest communication, open communication with the parents, really important. So one of, one of the things that... Um, we, we do at the club is we have several um, meetings throughout the season. So there would be an open meet, you know, a meeting to begin with in, in introducing them to the, the environment, the philosophy, and then there's meetings throughout. But I think not all meetings need to be formal and you have to be approachable that the parents need to know fundamentally that you care about their child and that you've got their child's uh, development um, at the heart of it. And I think that comes with your connection, your connection with their child and the way in which you connect with them as parents. Because what we have to remember is there's a big commitment from them. They, you know, you look and you wonder how on earth 
do you actually manage with perhaps other siblings going to work, managing with other things in life and still bring your child to training on time three times a week give up your weekends you could have a game so you know you could have a game where you have to do a commute of three to four hours round trip that's your sunday over you know and if it's particularly where there are other siblings that's that that can be that can be a real strain so i think also it's just recognizing and remembering that there's families in this commitment it's not just the player and as much as we want to develop the player it's taking that into consideration and if, if you were to flip the coin and, and suggest you know we could give give the parents um some guidance or some um information to really help you what guidance might we give them how could they best help their their son daughter progress through a, a talent pathway so I think the first thing is, is, is to remember that as much as for some, it may be that your dream is being lived through your child, that can put a lot of pressure on the child. And it's thinking about, again, what the characteristics and makeup of a child are. They, they want to learn. They've got a lot of enthusiasm. You know, they're extremely excitable. and. They want to be in an environment that allows them to take risks without fear of failure. And if the parents can manage the pressure, if we're talking about a kid, an academy environment, if the parents can assist in helping the, their child manage the environment by being positive, by thinking about their questioning, allowing their child to share as opposed to telling their child what they should have done and trusting the process and fundamentally trusting the coaches and the club to do the best for their child. Mm. I think that will then help their child along the journey. Mm. Wow, some powerful stuff. And it, and it is such an, a passionate arena, isn't it, where people always want the best for their, for their child and you know, the coaches want the best. So it's a fine balance. And, you know, one of the things you picked up earlier on, which I'm particularly interested to just come back to, is around your mental health, um, your brother's mental health, players' mental health. It's, a, it's an area which is really prevalent at the moment. And, and I'm wondering, you know, in a broader sense, just to widen it out, what, what, what's your views on uh, mental health in the sporting arena at the moment? So if I, if I think, you know, I, I go back to, to when we were talking about my brother, his is a real rare and extreme case. Right. So as part of his bullying, he was, he was kidnapped by his bullies. We had no idea he was missing for three days. Uh, there was real trauma and that trauma has manifested in him developing psychosis and having so much fear that he just does not talk unless it's to the voices that he hears. So that's a very rare and unique case. However, the learnings from that have certainly taught me and told me that when we're, talk when we're working with young people, what we have to remember is that the learning environment that we create will allow them to flourish. So we want to be able to create an environment that allows them to talk freely, to communicate. If, if they have a problem or something's, you know, something's gone on that they don't feel that they can't come and talk to their, their coach. Like I would feel, I would be mortified if one, that the, the, the children thought she doesn't care and the other one that we can't come and talk to her. And it may not be you because it may be that they feel more comfortable talking to somebody else. Mm -hmm. But I just think that the environment and the culture has to be such that one that promotes open discussion. And um, there's a quote actually about uh, a flower, which is, which is one that it's one of, one of my favorite quotes. Um, and it's if the flower doesn't bloom, you change the environment in which it grows. And fundamentally, you don't you don't 
try to fix the flower because what we want to do is be able to develop the child and if the child isn't developing first of all you need to look at yourself your behaviors your actions is that impact impacting on the child's development and actually your ego should come from developing the child and caring about the child and if there is an impact then you need to try and adapt and change that because how else will how else will the players develop? How else will the children learn? So I think when we're talking about mental health within a sporting environment, the environment and the culture within the clubs have to be such that it allows for open discussion, and the the players are encouraged to talk and take risks and communicate without you know without the fear of failure. How, how are we doing with that? Do you think? I, I think that um, I think that things are getting better. And, and I think particularly within um, a competitive environment, they're getting better. And I say that because there are a lot more, there is a lot more education for those who work within those environments. And you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. So everything's about learning, but you have to be open to that learning. Yeah. So I think you've got it on twofold. One is that they're, they're perhaps probably still a, a cohort who... I've done it this way and therefore I'm going to continue to do it this way. But you've also got a cohort of people who are willing to be open, who I've done it this way, but actually I want to evolve and I want to adapt. And I think that because there's a lot more education, whether it's through the FA, whether it's through counties, whether it's through those um, not football, not not directly football related, people are, are now becoming a lot more educated and equipped with some of the skills because ultimately we are not all going to be experts in those areas but what we want to be able to do is have some foundation to help the children and we can then seek advice from experts if there are any any problems going forward so if you're in a position where you can notice signs and symptoms it could be as an example a young player might have uh, might, might be suffering from bereavement. His behaviour patterns might have might have changed. Now, if you if you're somebody who's been given a firm foundation or some some education around actually what do you notice, so we're looking at noticing skills. What are the signs and the symptoms? Yeah. They can then, you know, if they feel through um, th- through their observations that actually it's a cause for concern. Now you go to the experts, mm. but I think fundamentally the, the the coach is the psychologist. That that in my in my in my opinion, the coach is the psychologist. Mm. You work with this player all the time. Mm. You are the most closely connected to this player and can heavily influence their actions and their behaviours. So I would, I would even nearly broaden that out for me. As you're speaking, I'm reflecting there and thinking actually. We're all psychologists, really, or or we play to my uh, you play to my favourite word or one of my words at the moment, which is about noticing. You know, and if we're to carry around ourselves and notice what's going on for the people that we're involved in, whether it be football, cricket, netball, hockey, in in the the primary school classroom, that's a key part, isn't it? To notice what's going on for people and changes in behaviours, and then actually then act and go to. The expert is that is that what you're saying because i'm a hundred percent yeah i think like, like i said you know i've said before that i'm by no means an expert in those fields but i don't think don't think we are and and why should we be because we're experts within our own fields um because we do have a close connection with the players it is our duty and our responsibility to notice and to be aware and i think fundamentally What's crucial is that we do something about it once we notice. And it might not even be a cause for concern. It might be, I'm not really sure about this. That's where you go to the experts and you ask. You ask questions. Go to your league phases. Go to Ukraine. You know, go, and it doesn't, like I said, you know, it, there are many clubs who don't have trained experts across different departments. So it's go to trusted people. Go to people you trust and make sure you let them know it's nearly playing back to a word for me that you used earlier on which was share again you know you talked about your experience of sharing where you were at or what was going on and actually by if you notice something share it somebody you know preferably somebody that's got a a good insight into that domain but it's actually about communicating because you never quite know is that again something that you're advocating 
Yeah, definitely. I think that um, open communication is important, not just the relationship between you and the player, but you and the other members of staff. And coaches can change age groups and work across the spectrum with different players. So unless things are um, confidential, I think it is important that there is an awareness of players across your phase, uh, particularly if, like certainly, at, you know, at, at, at QPR, that the coaches work across the, the age groups within the phase. So I think it's really important that, that there is an awareness, like I said, unless it's confidential, of, um, of things that can then help you help the player. Well, Manish, you've said a couple of times here that, you know, I, I'm not the expert, but what always strikes me as we're talking here is about the, the exposure you've had to so many different experiences, you know, and I think part of what I'm drawn to try and pull out within the sports story sort of podcast is, is hearing people's experiences because they're so valuable and insightful and spark off different things with different people. So, you know, I, I just want to celebrate, you know, the, the challenging times that you've shared and the experiences you've had formulated your thinking you know and I think that's worth um it's really worth listening to and acknowledging it's not to say that you're right but it's actually to to respect that you've actually lived a journey and actually listened to yourself and watched yourself and being humble enough to say we've got things right and we've got things wrong you know and I just want to sort of celebrate that the, it, it would be a, a, a miss of me not to also ask you about something that you mentioned right at the beginning which was around you know the imbalance in terms of women in sport, but also um, Asian women in sport. And I'm just wondering, could you share any thoughts around that just before we begin to wrap up towards the end? I think um, I began to notice that there is an imbalance within the professional game, especially when I started to work part-time at the academy. So I'd been at Middlesex um, at the Girl Centre of Excellence didn't really notice it no, didn't really notice it then I, I did actually when I was um, working in schools that I, I did notice there was an imbalance in terms of ethnicity with senior leaders yeah. not that many minority uh, ethnic minority senior leaders and at that time I remember being put on courses for black and Asian minority ethnic communities like leadership courses and when I joined QPR I thought to myself I actually know why now. I know why because at the time I couldn't. It didn't. It, I couldn't comprehend it. Now I didn't really understand. And and perhaps that's because I spent a long time working across schools in a demographic that's very diverse. Worked in Ealing. I worked in in Brent. You know, they're, they're very diverse boroughs. Yeah. Um, it, although my last post was in Hillingdon, it was from then, and then coming into in, into QPR that I really thought, wow. First of all, where are the women? And, and second yeah. of all, there are very few, in fact, hardly any, any South Asian women. And I'm at a fantastic club where the, the, you've got diversity across the board, from the owners to the director of football to our head of coaching to, um, you know, to, to coaching staff. So um, I'm, I'm quite fortunate. And... Although I say that, I'm, and like I said, I'm at a great club where um, I, I'm, I'm learning and I'm learning so much from Alex Carroll, our academy director, and, uh, and Chris Ramsey, our head of coaching. But I still found it very challenging to manage the environment. And I'm the only South Asian female working in a professional football club. And then I'm the only South Asian female working in a professional football club full time. So it, it's lonely. It's really lonely because you're looking for people that you can draw upon and lean on. And I'm not saying that you have to come from an ethnic minority background to uh, have empathy. I'm not saying that at all. Mm. Um, however, for me personally, I've found it extremely challenging. And there have been occasions where um, I felt that I've been undermined, you know, that, that, that there's been occasions where I've had to have challenging conversations. And I don't think that that's a fault of any individuals. Yeah. What I do think needs to happen is there needs to be greater education within football culture. And it's definitely just not my experience. 
I, I, I feel that this is probably shared experiences uh, for many other women uh, within my position. So, so for people that do share your experiences, because I do hear these stories of, often myself, so I really want to resonate with what you're saying, is what guidance or tips or what you know, bits of help might you be able to share that might help some people from your experiences? How have you managed yourself? So one of, so, I mean, look, for, for me, like I said, that because of the, I, I, because I feel that I'm in a place and I'm at a club where um, I can have open conversations, yeah, yeah. it's what's really benefited is that I've been able to be open and honest with, with Chris and I've yeah. been able to be open and honest with, with Alex. And it was about pro- providing me with tools and strategies yeah. on how I can ultimately, to begin with, manage the environment. I'm coming from an environment that's very female dominated. I was managing female staff. I'm now taking a transition into an environment that's very different to education, Mm. um, as in operationally. It's also male orientated. And I'm now managing the polar opposite, isn't it? It's a polar opposite. It's a polar opposite. So what I initially needed to do, and you know, and I think we spoke about humility before it's important to recognize where you're at so i've got enough humility to say you know um that it's a new environment and i know that i'm still learning within the environment but it is about learning and getting better but as long as you're self-aware of what it is you need to work on so they said to me with regards to managing the environment it was focusing on um managing relationships different techniques and strategies on managing staff. Um, the ECAS that I'm on has, has certainly helped with that as well, uh, which has been great. And I feel better. So, you know, kind of moving a season on from that, I feel better for it. And although, you know, I'll, I'll be honest enough to say that I'm still in a place where I'm still learning the environment, but I feel that the more open that we can be around um, how we feel and how it affects us, um, I think we'll be in a better place. So like I said, that I feel that football culture needs education around how we can readdress the balance so that we don't continue to have people like me and others who do feel lonely and intimidated within, within, a majority because I am a minority within a majority mm. and what we want to do is try and change that not in a tokenistic way because we certainly want the best people for the job yeah you want um, however I think there's a lot to be done particularly in the professional game until that happens yeah. I mean you should you know part of our conversation today is to help that educational journey, isn't it? by sharing these stories. So, you know, again, just wanted to applaud your openness, your hum- humility, and the way in which you've articulated your journey. Because I think by, by individuals understanding that, it goes part way to people, you know, putting themselves in your shoes. And, you know, you're doing a very great job of doing your best to put yourselves in other people's shoes. So it goes both ways, doesn't it? And I think, you know, celebrating again that we're here sharing that story. So, on that note, I want to just take us to a little bit more of a functional place, which is um, about really giving some tips and some direction to, to the listeners. So I'm going to fire um, one or two questions at you, and I want you to come with your gut instinct, if that's all right. So okay. um, I'm going to ask you, um, could you outline three or four books that have really influenced you along your way or that you would be uh, your go-to books to guide you or guide our listeners in, in their journey? Uh, so the top one for me is Mindset by Carol Dweck um, and there's um, there's another book that uh, I that two actually so Soccer Tough by Dan Abraham um, and uh, The Goldmine Effect so th- those three for me quite all, all quite different yeah. actually um, but the psychology around football and thinking um, uh, has been has been you know I think for me it's been has been really important. Yeah, powerful, good good books, and I and I like the idea of also similar but different, aren't they? From different lenses, yeah. I guess, which is which is great. Um, technology, you know, you've worked in education, you've worked in football, very different environments. Um, what technology or piece of software has really been your lifesaver? Would you say or your go to? 
my laptop. <laughs> I'm glued. My laptop is my lifesaver. I'm I'm glued to my yeah to my laptop and my um and my tablet because one of the things uh, that that I've noticed that is useful for the players is is being able to show them like you know if for instance we're in the changing room being able to show them um, clips on Huddle through through a tablet. So my tablet and my laptop. And you use and you use Huddle for your players quite often, is it? As a piece of software, do you find that one of your key go-to softwares in your day job? Would you say? Yeah, I mean, look, it, not as as um, I think we would like to use it, but it's certainly a, it's one of the, it's it's a tool that we use. Great stuff, good stuff. Next question. I was blown away by, you know, the roles that you play. So, you, you know, you're a full-time lead foundation face coach, but you've also got um, some big challenges going on in your personal environment. You know, you had come from uh, an educational environment. You work many hours. You've got your own business going or your own brand developing. How do you um, prepare yourself to perform at your best? You know, what kind of relaxation or preparedness do you take? So I go to the, I go to the gym. Uh, four to five times a week and I find that half an hour so not very long mm-hmm. um, but that for me is just a time where I just you know don't answer the phone don't look at the phone it's just a time for me just me time and that that really helps and uh, some some reading before I before going to bed I find that also is quite is quite therapeutic what sort of reading um i they, i really enjoy uh learning about learning so i mentioned like guy claxton and there's there's a couple of like educational psychologists who've got um some books so I, i'm i'm really fascinated about models of learning and, and development so I, I quite i kind of you know go on google and i'll have research so to, yeah, just just learn. Yeah, been a been a bit of a learning geek, you know. Really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, great stuff. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? I, I would say, um, have the humility to know where you are, in order for you to get to where you want to be. Wow, sounds really powerful and really thought through. Next question, two more to go. Can you name three people that have really impacted on your life? Okay, so uh, Chris Ramsey. Yeah. Alex Welsh. Three really hard. From, so I'm going to base this around uh, my career purely uh, because I feel as a minority within what I'm doing, it's, it's been extremely challenging. Uh, Matthew Joseph. And can you talk, just say a little bit about those three in terms of what they've done for you, for, for those people that might not know who they are? So Chris Ramsey for me is my, he, he's somebody that I inspire to want to be like. I, I just see him as, as, as one of the best player developers in the country. And the learning that I am getting under his tuition it is is phenomenal, and I'm fortunate that he's accelerating me in my learning, right, uh, right. which means that you're sprinting. <laughs> but um, but uh, you know that the fact that he he explains things, he spends time, and he's got all this knowledge from being a player, from being at the stuff that he's done at Tottenham, you know, from, from his time when he was also teaching that that I can draw upon, and you know. Uh, you know, I'll be open and I'll say this. If it's not for Chris Ramsey, I haven't got an opportunity to come and volunteer at QPR. If it's not for the volunteering opportunity, I haven't got a job at QPR. So uh, I'll always be loyal to people who have, you know, given those opportunities and who've been visionary. And for me, he he's definitely somebody who's forward thinking and looks beyond protected characteristics and actually seeks people who would be best for those jobs. Oh. Wow, powerful stuff. Can you give us a, a quick synopsis for the other two as well? <laughs> so Alex Welsh, I've known Alex uh, for, for uh, many, many years, and he put me on the level two pathway and has helped me ever since then. So since 2009, and he's been extremely helpful with regards to me developing um, as a coach. And Matthew Joseph 
uh, equally uh, more so with some of the youth modules. So he, he, he's been brilliant. And along with Matty, I'll also say, sorry, Peter Augustine, um, who gave me some volunteering opportunities um, when, when he was academy manager at Hampton and Richmond. So that there's been some there's been some great people out there who've really helped me and are continuing to help me along the way. And you paint a lovely picture for me again about those people that have opened doors, but also those people that have inspired and challenged um, you through them as well. So it's not just about opening doors. And, and when they open the door, it's also about them really backing you and, and showing a, a level of both challenge and care. I'm getting a real sense that these people really care for taking you on the journey to be the best football coach you can be irrespective of your your ethnicity your gender whoever they want for you to be the best at your job is that fair yeah absolutely i'd say in a nutshell you need to fight for yourself yes. but you need people to fight for you and those that i've mentioned and, and there are many you know many mm. others uh, who, who do that and i'm grateful that they do because that is allowing me to learn and develop and I'm fortunate that they do see potential in 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 continuing to help me develop mm -hmm. wow and my very last question then Anisha would be um whose sports story would you like to hear and why um I would like to I would actually like to hear Hope Powell's story sports story there's two am i allowed to say two of course you can yeah you're breaking the boundaries here again but there you go. <laughs> okay so I, I would like to hear hope Powell and kate howie's uh stories reason being both have had to to fight and both have had to go through adversity and challenges within their own right to be respected and regarded as females within sport and hope for me and inspiration within football and Kate Howie for me um, who's also my my mentor um, but the first female head coach of team GB you know I was able to lean on her with regards to managing male staff and how different that is and I would love to hear their journey and some of the experiences that they've gone through that I could then maybe draw upon. Great stuff. Really powerful and, and really thought through um, reasoned people as well. You know, there, there, there's, a, there's a real story or there's a real need or want and a desire to understand, you know, other people's journeys and the value that they can bring to you. You know, and, and for me, you've epitomized throughout, throughout our conversation today, just the, the importance of, of, of sharing your story to help others, but also watching other people's stories and learning from theirs. You know, I think that this learning journey for you has very much been a two-way cycle. Um, and, you know, I've, I've written down here on my sheet of paper in front of me about, you know, fighting for yourself. And, and given that I've never met you before and the story you've told today, there is, there is definitely a, a sense of you've, you've definitely fought for yourself along the way through the highs and the lows, you know. And, and I just, again, wanted to thank you for that, applaud you for that, and sharing some of the real personal stuff around your, your, your family situation, and the, the work that you've done with your brother and, and how you've actually used that as a fantastic catalyst especially coming towards, you know, where mental health is becoming such a, an important uh, issue to discuss and to work with and engage in, you know, whether it be in sports, whether it just be in football, whether it be in, I think in society as a whole, it's becoming such a much more um, spoken about topic and, and probably needs so much more energy put to it still. Um, so on that note, I'd just really like to thank you, Manisha, for, for sharing everything. My last throwaway to you would be you know going forward you're you're clearly this is not the end of your your journey this is a, a part step along the way how how might people who are listening get in touch with you or find out more about what you're doing and, and engage in some of the great work that you continue to do yeah so um my uh well, through twitter um and through instagram it's um at swagalicious which is my which is my company and all my my website which is www.swagalicious.com 
Brilliant. Well, what we'll do, we'll make sure that those details go on the little show notes at the bottom of the podcast. So if people didn't write them down, they can pick them up after the show. But uh, on that note, thank you ever so much for um, being with me today. I've really, really enjoyed it. Um, Good luck. And I look forward to having you on the show again at some stage. And I'm sure we can get sort of episode number two or part two of the journey. But thanks again, Manisha. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you. We have the sports story of Manisha Taylor. It was a conversation that lived up to everything I'd hoped and even more. It's really made me consider the impact the close relationships I have have on me. Hearing Manisha's story about her twin brother and how he was so badly bullied and the resulting actions she has taken was incredible. In her very humble way, she has also made me consider the concepts of learning and overcoming adversity. The learning she has taken from her experiences was incredible as a carer, as a teacher, and as a coach. Furthermore, the learning she continues to do now and going forward, which she is driving. And also, how does she help those she works with in the academy learn, as both a coach and a teacher? So the two questions I'd like to pose today are, what adverse experiences have you had that you can recall the positive learning you gained? And given our focus on mental health, what do you need to put in place to make sure you develop and maintain a positive mental health? These are both big questions that I would love to hear your thoughts and reflections on. Furthermore, if you would like to talk through some of the issues raised by Manisha's story, then please make contact with me at sportstories247 at gmail.com. So hopefully you've enjoyed today's podcast and it's given you some food for thought. Further details will be on the show notes below the podcast. Also, Please join me next week for another great guest and it would be really appreciated if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts if that's where you're listening as this would help others find and gain the value from the Sports Stories podcast. So from me, Dave Levine, until next week, look after yourself and I look forward to having you join me again soon.